0: Welcome to Radio Berkman, I'm Daniel Dennis-Jones. There's an interesting chart created by Randall Monroe, the artist behind the popular webcomic XKCD, called Stories of the Past and Future. The chart maps out works of fiction that present the history and the future, and compares their publication date to the era that they fictionalize. It's a hard chart to explain verbally. There's a link up on our website. But one of the big takeaways is just how awful fiction has been at predicting the future. From 1984 to 2001, A Space Odyssey, to Back to the Future, to The Terminator, no one has really quite gotten it. We don't have anything close to hover cars or shape-shifting robots made of liquid metal today. But what these works of fiction invariably do get right is how mundane, how seamlessly new and revolutionary technology weaves into our society. In the 2015 of Back to the Future, the dogs walk themselves, the rain clouds stop and start precisely on schedule, and the cars simply float because of course they do. We may not have anything quite as radical as what Robert Zemeckis imagined for Back to the Future in our own version of 2015, but that doesn't mean we're any less unfazed by the march of technological progress than the citizens of that alternate 2015 timeline. And the fact that we often are so unfazed by technological progress is the very reason it's worth reflecting on. I recently spoke with David Michelle Davies, the executive director of the Webby Awards, according to a report they produced with the Harris Poll, a survey of 2,000 American adults. We are coming to embrace a new normal. The ubiquity of constantly networked smart devices, along with an explosion of on demand outsourcing applications, has begun to create a generation of consumers that are so entitled that we're willing to give up all kinds of control and even our own privacy in exchange for services we never thought we
1: needed. Gosh, this this world of internet services is exploding. And this is we've had so many discussions about this here. We all had this experience where one week one of these services is just like feels like magic like the first time you get into an uber car and it just like you order it and then two minutes later there's a car and it picks you up and it takes you almost anywhere you want to go and you never take out your wallet And you're like wow this feels like you know this feels like 2025 or this feels like the future and then two weeks later you know why is my uber car taking nine minutes instead of four minutes you know there's so many instances where technology is like that where there's this magical element to it at first and then really quickly uh, after we kind of become very acclimated to it.
0: And once people get hooked on these services, it's like, like, hey, I've come to expect this service to travel around town. I want to see this level of service for all aspects of my life.
1: Yeah, so it's really, it's really interesting. So we actually we polled people, same, same group, about what their expectations were for the next five years when it comes to technology. And to me, the what was really interesting was as much of what they thought would be available, but also the implications for what it meant that they were comfortable with being available, right? So more than 70% expect there to be a service that monitors their vital signs in real time and provides predictive health counseling. You know, there's obviously a huge market out there for activity monitors and all these things now. But again, to me, what's interesting here is not that they're so predictive, but... Um, that it also means on some level they're comfortable, you know, 70% or more people are comfortable with the concept of technology playing this big role in their in their health and their wellness, right? And that's that's a huge change, I think. If you look, you know, five, 10 years ago, the, the level of comfort people had with technology, sort of knowing all about their bodies and, you know, their vital signs and, you know, whether they smoke or don't smoke and all those things which are pretty personal, uh, people have gotten pretty comfortable with that. One of our questions was around, services and making decisions for you and you know what we found was um, I think it was more than 65% of Americans expected services There's all types of services right not just not just online services but literally like the tutor and the gardener and the mechanic they expected the service to learn their taste and make suggestions for them right Um, and I think that's actually one of the that's always been one of the hallmarks of great service it's always about learning to know getting to know the customer better and making great suggestions for them and making it easier. because you think of the act of choosing something and making a decision about something as a way of like honing your taste, you know, I like this, I want to listen to this, I want to try this now. That's sort of how you keep, you keep knowledgeable. It's almost like practicing your taste. And if you stop making those decisions, if something else is making those decisions for you, um, you really start thinking about like, well, who's deciding what I like? Do I like what, is being played to me, or do I like what I'm choosing, you know? And so that, that line of where, where your taste is being formed starts moving around. I think it's a really, it's a really interesting thing, and it, and it obviously has lots of implications for, you know, not just music, but, you know, all types of personal behavior and personal identity. Today on the
0: podcast, we look back on the last year or so of development on the web, what we as consumers and citizens demand of the web, and what the web demands of us. How people are using the technology to fight back against hate speech, how smart technology can make dumb decisions, whether a mass movement to fight online censorship laws will ever happen again, or if just maybe it will take a private corporation based in a censorship-loving superpower to change the game on freedom of speech. All of the stories and interviews for today's show, I should mention, are adapted from the recent Internet Monitor annual report, Reflections on the Digital World a collection of dozens of essays on the state of the net that's well worth reading. You can find that report linked on today's show notes. But let's get started. In early 2012, you couldn't browse the web without encountering a blackout. Wikipedia, Tumblr, Google, and Twitter were among many who opposed a pair of bills that, in attempting to stop piracy on the net, would also radically inhibit all kinds of speech. And so, if you visited Wikipedia, Tumblr, Google, or Twitter, you might have encountered a blackout screen encouraging you to contact your congressperson and put the brakes on these bills. This effort was wildly successful, but, according to Andy Sellers, a fellow at Berkman's Cyber Law Clinic and author of the piece SOPA Lives, Copyright's Existing Power to Block Websites and Break the Internet, the underlying power to regulate speech on the net still exists.
2: So, yeah, SOPA is, is something when – you, when you say the word SOPA, you think late 2011, early 2012. And you think about the protests in January of 2012 that eventually led to SOPA uh, being backed off of uh, in Congress. But the uh, – w-
0: that SoPA is the Stop Online Piracy
2: Act. Yes. It was SOPA and PIPA, uh, which was – SOPA was the Stop Online Piracy Act. P- PIPA was the Protect IP Act, which itself was a backronym for something else that I don't remember. But these were these two bills. They actually were based on an earlier bill called COICA – Um, that was in uh, 2010-2011. I think it was introduced in around September 2010. And uh, my particular piece for Internet Monitor was actually looking at an act even earlier than that, which is the Pro-IP Act of 2008. Uh, And the power that was given uh, under uh, copyrights in-rem forfeiture provisions to uh, take down material that sort of aids and abets and induces infringement. In-ram forfeiture is this kind of weird area of law that uh, we basically use in a couple of specific areas to go after property as if property itself was the bad actor. So it's usually used in cases where it's really hard to find the the original bad actor. It was in U.S. law for uh, since inception in cases of admiralty. So going after ships hmm. and then sort of treating the ship as if the ship was the bad actor because ships could quickly travel away from your port and all of a sudden you have no one to hold accountable anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it kind of sat in admiralty law for a very long time. And then it was added to uh, with prohibition to go after alcohol, and then the war on drugs to go after drugs. We have interim forfeiture in copyright and in trademark. And uh, in those two realms, we had a series of actions uh, in 2010, 2011, and then actually going through today, uh, where we've taken down websites in the name of trademark infringement mainly, But for a brief spat, we had a few of these using copyright, going after websites that, uh, in the eyes of uh, the FBI and DOJ, were uh, sort of enabling file sharing and piracy online.
0: What's a what's an example of one of these sites? Something somebody might not expect.
2: Yeah, so uh, there are a couple of really interesting ones. Uh, if you think of the classic example, they're trying to go after sort of these mega upload and hot file type sites. So neither one of those were particularly targeted. These websites where there would be lists of files that were available that were being hosted on these uh, cyberlocker type sites, and there would be sort of this uh, federation of websites where one would have these links to a CyberLocker site where the file would be stored, and they were trying to use some degree of jurisdictional arbitrage to avoid actually being liable at any point. Um, Some websites, though, were definitely not that. So you had these websites um, like dejazwan.com, which was a website that had some files on it linked off to file-sharing sites, but also just had blogs, chats, messages, posts, um, the sort of sort of general interest type websites you might have with, you know, robust forums and comment sections and things like that. So um, like with SOPA, where the concern was you'd be taking down entire websites for a small piece that may or may not be uh, illegal or infringing, uh, you had uh, the Department of Justice taking down these websites uh, using interim forfeiture, uh, even though they never actually had to prove at the initial stage. Um, And they never had to go before a judge before taking it down that there was actually infringing activity here. That's not how we've treated speech previously. Even if we accept that there are types of speech that are not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, Obscene speech was the big one in the 1960s. Mm. And you could say copyright infringing speech does not get the same First Amendment protections that other speech does. But even if you accept that, there are procedures in place to help discern the good speech from the actionable speech Uh, that were definitely not followed in the in-REM cases here. And the threat of it not being followed in SOPA was the genesis of a lot of the speech-oriented opposition to SOPA. We see SOPA today being bandied about whenever there's a policy being proposed um, that, that people are afraid might lead to online censorship. We have that in the law today. It exists in the statute today. The same power, the same fear, the same mechanism. And we don't see the popular outcry for that. Yet, yeah, and so it raises an interesting question about, and this came up a lot around the discussion of SOPA. Is like, well, does that mean that um, the the political activism and the popular constitutionalism around SOPA is that really only something we can use to stop something from happening? Is that something we can take and make it an affirmative action with? Can we use that same protest to actively change the law today for the good instead of just stopping the bad?
0: Yeah, that's interesting because uh, you, you've got a a case like SOPA in 2012 where people were just like, oh my God, it's gotten so bad. We have to do something about this and uh, convinced a lot of people to call their Congress people, which they have rarely done um, for any other issue, but uh, they were aroused to action around this. Um, but it, when it comes to actually changing the law to, uh, to, to make a stand and say, we as the United States of America, we uh, will set into law a, a principle by which you will no, this will never be able to happen again. Uh, people aren't calling for that.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It makes me kind of think that if we had the same powers and mechanisms in place and we went back to 2008 with the Pro-IP Act, which gave us this expanded interim forfeiture power of past, you know, maybe, maybe not. Um, but there's not a lot of time between 2008 when that happened and um, 2010, 2011, 2012, when the, the opposition to, to SOPA, what eventually became SOPA, mm-hmm. really uh, galvanized. So what is it about those couple of years that kind of pivoted um, the online uh, public participation that we actually had bills sailing through massive majorities, very rarely any opposition to a lot of major encroachments on, uh, on expression and freedom done in the name of copyright uh, enforcement and, and uh, anti-piracy? Um, We have a long history of us expanding copyright terms, of granting additional powers, of granting supplementary powers, and then increasing the criminalization of copyright law as well. Um, And really we were kind of just plowing through always with massive majorities getting those bills enacted into laws. uh, And suddenly we pivoted with, with SOPA. Um, and I don't think SOPA was so radically different than other bills in the past in terms of it being another step forward in terms of the aggressiveness of uh, criminalization and civil penalties in in piracy. What is it going to take? for us to look at the Pro-IP Act more critically.
0: So for 2015 and, and beyond, do you see a few different scenarios, one in which a popular uprising comes in and decides to uh, make the, the, the nation safe for the net? Or?
2: You know, it's it's a really good question. And we, I think 2015 presents a great opportunity, though the, there has been a lot of discussion about what the Register of Copyrights Maria Polantik has been calling the next great Copyright Act. And um, the Copyright Office and the House and Senate Judiciary committees have been holding meetings discussing what the next great Copyright Act might be. At the same time, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, which is um, ostensibly patent and trademark oriented, but does care about intellectual property more generally, has been commissioning uh, a green paper, they've been calling it, looking at you know what needs to change in copyright law for the, the modern era. So there's a lot of attention and excitement around copyright reform right now. And I think everyone's aware that we're in a different world now when it comes to copyright reform than we were even five, ten years ago, because uh, the public is paying much more attention. The last major reform in copyright came in 1976. Mm-hmm. And the proposals for, you know, hey, it's time to reform the Copyright Act started around 1960, 1961, 1962. Um, so it was a long process the last time we, we did a serious overhaul of copyright law. So if that's where Congress is going, I think we've got a long time ahead of us. So this will <laughs> not be, we, we, will, we could be talking about this again in 2016, 2017, 2018. Um, 2018 is a magical year in copyright though, because that's where the Copyright Term Extension Act Finally, lapses. So that's going to be a very, very interesting year in copyright reform.
0: Not necessarily for the last time, because that's been maybe,
2: maybe not. Renewed. Though I think that you will definitely won't sail through Congress like it did last time.
0: For one, Sunny Bono isn't in office anymore. It will
2: have to be named after someone else too, I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: well, thank you very much, Andy. Hey, my pleasure, Dan. Thanks. Andy Sellers is a fellow at Berkman Cyberlaw Clinic and the author of the Internet Monitor piece "SOPA Lives: Copyright's Existing Power to Block Websites and Break the Internet." which you can find in today's show notes. The laws around speech online are one thing, but the norms around speech are very different. While we may not want to encourage legislation that regulates what you can and can't say online, that doesn't mean we aren't powerless. Visit Reddit or Facebook or any comment section and you'll see everything from cyberbullying to actual hate speech. But the norms are evolving, and people are inventing all kinds of counter-speech to deal with hate. According to Susan Benish, the author of the piece "Flower Speech: New Responses to Hatred Online,"
3: what I've seen in 2014 is increasingly numerous and ingenious um, efforts to push back uh, on on all kinds of hateful and violent speech online. Um, maybe before before last year, there was some sort of a consensus that the internet is 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 a bit of a cesspool that large numbers of people express themselves in hateful and ugly ways online and that there's nothing that one can really do about it. I think that is the proposition that is beginning to get refuted a bit. That maxim, don't feed the trolls, doesn't seem to be sufficient anymore. There are, it seems, more and more efforts to try to do something about it. In Myanmar, for example, where quite vicious anti-Muslim hate speech has proliferated on Facebook. A group of activists founded what they call a movement, and that they have named Panzagar, which means, in the Burmese language, uh, flower speech or flower language. That is an individual and collective commitment to resist hate speech and, of course, to avoid it. Almost immediately, they created a meme, which is the image of a person with a flower in his or her mouth. So the panzakar designers, who are quite heavily influenced by manga and anime, drew images of, usually of women, with flowers in their mouths. And then thousands of people have posted selfies of themselves with flowers in their mouths as well. And, and that's, that's quite a courageous act in that context. There have been so many examples of counter-speech in utterly different context, which is by itself pretty intriguing, which reminds me of another very interesting example from 2014. Um, when Miss America 2014 was, was chosen, it became, of course, obvious that she is uh, not blonde, blue-eyed, or white. Uh, she is Nina Davaluri, the daughter of immigrants from India, I'm sorry to say that uh, lots of Americans expressed their disgust, outrage, hatred online. So there was, for example, one guy who tweeted, I'm literally so mad right now that an Arab won Miss America. In this case, he was both hateful or racist and uh, ignorant. He apparently couldn't distinguish someone whose parents immigrated from India from an Arab. So he received many indignant responses. People corrected his mistake and also told him that he was racist. Just one example of a counter-tweet in that case was, one day I hope you realize how shameful this tweet is. I hope you realize it tomorrow. And um, interestingly enough, he did. At first, the author of the original tweet responded in a defensive way, but then very quickly he changed his tune and tweeted at Miss America, sorry for being rude and racist and calling you an uh, Arab. Please tweet back so everyone will know it's real. <laughs> his, his spelling is not too great either in the hateful tweet or in the apology. He may not have improved his spelling much, but he... Very much changed his tune. Um, And that is something else that I observed a number of times in in 2014 and also to some extent in previous years. Some hate speakers have been confronted by the targets of their hate speech, and some of them have completely come around. Seems to me that is counterintuitive. We Mm. often assume that someone who produces very ugly or hateful speech can't be convinced to stop. Surely we cannot convince many hate speakers to stop, but evidence emerged in uh, 2014 that this can happen sometimes. So research ought to be done to find out why it works in some cases and how to do it.
0: Well, so let's forecast for 2015 and beyond do you think we'll see more of these examples of engaging with the creators of hate speech or more examples of of simply trying to counter or drown out that speech? What what do you what do you see as some of the kinds of trends in working with hate speech online?
3: I know that there will be more examples of people trying to engage with hate speakers online to convince them to stop. I also know that there will be more interventions of completely different types against hate speech. Another entirely different type of effort is to try to protect the targets of hateful speech. So if you can't stop those who are producing the hateful speech, then you can try to support and protect the targets of such speech in a more organized and effective way. Notice that neither of those... Is the method that has that has prevailed by far the most until now, and that is to try to censor the speech some governments after all have laws against hate speech which they have tried to bring to bear on the internet, and all of the major social media platforms have some rules against certain kinds of speech which they attempt to enforce, and which very often governments and some uh, users of the platforms try to get the, the companies uh, to enforce more vigorously. In my view that's not a solution. Uh, attempting to block or delete content by itself can't be a durable solution because it doesn't uh, decrease the supply of that speech very much. It's uh, maybe like the war on drugs. You know, If you just keep trying to use pure enforcement of anti-drug laws in order to to protect people against drugs without trying to do anything about the supply, you'll never make much progress. Now, there is another uh, kind of method or intervention, which is none of the three that I've described so far, namely censorship or deletion, trying to engage with the people producing the hate speech, and finally uh, trying to protect targets of hate speech. So a fourth possibility is to study ways of changing platform architecture to make it less hospitable to hate speech or to make it less easy for hate speakers to dominate a particular platform. And there's some interesting work there too, which I predict will expand in, in the course of the next year or two.
0: Well, thank you very much for talking with us, Susan.
3: Thank you, Dan. It was my pleasure.
0: Susan Benish is a faculty associate at the Berkman Center and the author of the Internet Monitor piece, Flower Speech New Responses to Hatred Online, which you can find on today's show notes. China is well-known as one of the most restrictive countries when it comes to speech online. Any internet company based in China lives behind the Great Firewall, which means anything on their servers can be censored or monitored. Hundreds of millions of people, many of them not even Chinese citizens, are users of Chinese-based apps, meaning they're also vulnerable to this firewall. Nathan Freitas, the author of the piece The Great Firewall Welcomes You, asks why.
4: WeChat, or the Chinese name, uh, Weixin Micro message. Uh, is a SMS replacement app, a text messaging replacement app for smartphones. And it offers all of the functionality you might expect. It can find people in your address book. uh, It can build a contact list, a buddy list, and you can send them short messages, long messages, but also photos and voice messaging. Keep in contact with people around the world because it's unlimited and free to send messages to anybody anywhere on on Earth so uh, that means that all of the kind of traveling Chinese overseas Chinese di- diasporas really enjoyed that capability
0: so it's a pretty cool app and it's it it sounds like it's justified that what you said that five hundred million people in China have downloaded and are using this and how many people uh, outside of China
4: uh, I think it was like a hundred million you know and growing
0: and there you have some concerns over people who are not consistently based in China, um, using uh, what essentially is a a Chinese-hosted application. People outside of the country um, might be facing some issues.
4: For the last 15 years, I've worked with the Tibetan diaspora to assist them in improving their security uh, online and protect against kind of very well-documented attacks by China-based adversaries attacks into their computers, uh, attempts to extract information about human rights organizations, get into people's inboxes, track people's phones. Uh, So I've been working in that community outside of Tibet. You know, Tibet's been occupied by China for 50 plus years. Um, So there's an exile community in India, Europe, U.S., uh, other parts of Asia that I've been working with to help, you know, defend against this type of attack. So into that kind of work came this huge surge in WeChat users in this exile population. And so when you're this Tibetan exile who's risked their lives to escape from the surveillance state, the the occupation, the oppression, and then you install this app on your phone, which is your most personal, intimate piece of technology, and that app has the ability to read pretty much any data from your phone, monitor your location, activate microphones, cameras, it's just this cognitive dissonance I can't <laughs> I can't understand what what kind of danger does it
0: put people in like a specific example
4: people will join group chats which have lots of people in them who they may or may not know um and some of those people are outside of tibet and china some people are inside and on these people share all sorts of photos and audio and different information right and so someone outside of tibet may say oh i you know i saw his holiness the dalai lama today i recorded some of his teachings and they'll post it to that group right? and then suddenly everyone in that group receives this audio recording of uh that is essentially banned would be banned in in tibet mm. um someone inside there there was a you know hundreds of um, self-immolation protests in tibet over the last few years people lighting themselves on fire uh, to protest the occupation and protest lack of religious freedom. And people would take footage of these and share that on WeChat. And so both these things, if you get caught having them, are you know crimes that you can be imprisoned for. And whether you actually have something to do with it or not, if it happens to be on your phone in a chat that you're in, right, it causes a lot of problems. Yeah. Second, um. It, it's the perfect tool for a surveillance state. It's as if every person opted into having a camera and a GPS tracker attached to their head. And then the government says, oh, just, you know, that's not run by us. That's run by this corporation. And just trust us and trust them that we won't turn it on, you know. And and that's from a government who doesn't have a legal, either a legal framework that's strong to protect people or a, a track record of, you know, protecting its citizens. I think in the U.S., We at least have a a platform, a legal structure that's meant to protect us. We may not have a good track record, but at least there's a rule of law to kind of stand on. Right. And I think
0: a lot of people would be surprised to think that, oh, this application I'm using that is incredibly useful and uh, is also very fun and pretty and works very well. um, You know, it is actually being has the potential to be surveilled and censored by Uh, an entity to which they're not a citizen of.
4: And there's two ways that it's done. One is, you know, the the company is served with some lawful process that, you know, requires them to turn over data on a specific person. And then second, most of these messaging apps have terrible security uh, implementations in their code itself. You're allowing surveillance of your users just because you've done a bad job building in security into your app. Or, you know, you you provide a very easy conduit for lawful intercept through your systems.
0: And it's interesting um, that there's been historically a lot of cases of very successful internet companies butting heads uh, with China, Yahoo, Facebook, Google, having issues with trying to comply with the letter of the law in China, and um, also... Respecting their own value systems and the rules within the United States as a as a U.S. based company, um, and those have turned out, you know, in varying ways. But this is a this is like the flip side of that. This is a company from China um, now spreading out worldwide. How is it working with with governments abroad and being able to comply with their their laws?
4: One of the most inspiring or hopeful outcomes of of this new development of this Chinese company kind of becoming a global company is for the possibility that they could adopt the same viewpoint or tactics that these American companies you've talked about have right so the goal of 10cent corporation who's already a public company in the Hong Kong trade uh, Hong Kong stock market um, but who definitely wants to become more prominent as a global company in the way that Alibaba, and Baidu and others have, uh, you know, in in some of these huge valuations, Xiaomi, um, you know, they they're increasingly more loyal to their corporate global bottom line than to necessarily their their own country. And this is, I mean, pretty typical for American corporations too. I mean, who, you know, who who, who hide lots of money in order to not pay the U.S. government <laughs> taxes, or who, like you said, don't comply with laws, or to do everything they can. And I'm not saying they're unpatriotic, but in just the way capitalism works and the way that products and users work, their loyalty is to their users who are not necessarily citizens of the U.S. And their loyalty is to their shareholders, their fiduciary responsibility is to their bottom line, to shareholders who are not necessarily citizens of the United States, right? And I hope that you know WeChat and Tencent as a parent company could be that, you know who could say, we're more important than the 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 CCP and the kind of the old school Chinese way of doing things we're bigger than that you know we have we're a global company uh and and we believe in you know kind of this new way and we will defend users' privacy and you know in, in ways that a Chinese company never has before so you describe their
0: they have an incentive to operate differently and perhaps operate outside of the law of China until China changes its law.
4: Um, Have you seen any indication
0: that they feel that way?
4: The indication I've seen thus far is that they're going to a, you know, two systems model, which is a favorite of China, which is outside of China, you can do this. In China, you have to do this, right? So... WeChat has said, we're going to set up a company outside of the U.S., servers outside of the U.S. We're going to have a version of the app outside of the U.S., which is very different than the version of the app inside. So the early indication is that in order to not get caught up in this larger issue, these Chinese companies are trying to create an image of we operate on global, the kind of a global way because we we have global server, servers outside of China – I think in the long run though the you know there are other indications of their incentives and and yeah it would, wouldn't it be a nice ending to the story if it was a Chinese company themselves who you know who changed their society right and not through some external forces pressuring them or you know i i just i i would I would love that to be the the way it turns out Thank you very much Nathan Thank you.
0: Nathan Freitas is a Berkman Fellow and the author of the piece The Great Firewall Welcomes You, which you can find on today's show notes. Perhaps the greatest threat to our offline lives might not come from people trying to monitor or censor our interactions online. It might actually come from smart machines, or at least machines that think they're smarter than us. Sarah Watson brings us this story of the kind of customer service experience we could come to expect from the near future.
5: My stupid refrigerator thinks I'm pregnant. I reach for my favorite IPA, but the refrigerator wouldn't let me take one from the biometrically authenticated alcohol bin. Our latest auto delivery from Peapod included pickles, orange juice, and prenatal vitamins. We never have orange juice in the house, because I find it too acidic. What machine learning magic produced this produce? And I noticed the other day that my water target had changed on my vessel. I wasn't sure why. I figured I must have just been particularly dehydrated. I guess I should have seen it coming. Our fountain TM tracking toilet noticed when I got off hormonal birth control and got an IUD instead. But I thought our toilet data was only shared between Nest and our doctors. What tipped off our Samsung fridge? I got a NOW notification that I was ovulating a few weeks ago. I didn't even know it had been tracking my cycle, let alone my basal body temperature through my wearable eye ring. I certainly hadn't turned that feature on. We're not even trying to have a baby right now. Or maybe my ARIA scale picked up on some subtle change in my body fat. Or maybe it was Warner. All our appliances are hooked up through one home hub. I didn't think twice about it, because it just worked. Every time we upgraded the dishwasher, the thermostat. Could it be that the Home Hub is sharing data between the toilet and our refrigerator? I went into our Home Hub interface it showed a bunch of usage graphs, apparently we've been watching a below average amount of TV lately. But I couldn't find anything that looked like a pregnancy notification. Where was this bogus conception data coming from? My iWatch pinged me. The lights in the room dimmed, and a connected aromatherapy candle lit up. The heart monitor on my bra alerted me that my heart rate and my breathing was irregular, and that I should stop for some meditative breathing. I sat down on my posture-tracking floor pillow and tried to sink in. But I couldn't keep my mind from wandering. Was it something in the water? Something in my snap text with Catherine? If it was true, why hadn't my doctor called yet? Could I actually be pregnant? I turned on the TV tab to distract me. But I was bombarded with sponsored ads for what to expect when you're expecting 9.0 and domain squatter sites that search for unique baby names. I searched for similar incidents on the quorums. Pregnancy, Samsung, refrigerator, pregnancy, fountain, toilet. Nothing. I really wanted to talk to somebody, but I couldn't call Google because they don't have a customer service number for Home Hub products. I tried Warner. After waiting for 37 minutes to speak with a representative, I was told that he couldn't give out any personal data correlations over the phone. What bureaucratic bullshit. It can't be true. Russell has been away in Addis Ababa on business for three weeks, and I've still got the IUD. We aren't trying yet. This would have to be a biocorrelative immaculate conception. I tapped Russell on his iWatch three times, Our signal to call me when he's done with his meeting. I was freaking out. I could have really used that beer. But the fridge still wouldn't let me take it. What if I really am pregnant? I opened up Tasker to see if I could get an old-fashioned birth control test delivered, but the price was three times as expensive as it normally would be. I considered CVS, but I thought better of it since you can't go in there anymore without a loyalty card. It was far, but I skipped the self-driving Uber shuttle and walked the extra mile to the place that accepts crypto, where I couldn't be tracked, I think. And that's when I got the notification that my funding interview for my new project the following morning had been canceled.
0: Well, um, I want to just start off by asking you, what inspired this story?
5: So I, I run a tech book club here at Berkman. And we started reading a bunch of fiction last summer. And so I started thinking a lot about the role that science fiction plays in talking about existing technology questions and kind of near future scenarios. And I spent a lot of time reading some speculative fiction. So uh Margaret Atwood actually calls her science fiction, her brand of science fiction, speculative fiction. Uh, And I kind of liked that because it's not space aliens and like things we've never encountered before, but it's rather taking things that exist to their logical conclusion to kind of warn people about the future scenarios that we don't necessarily want to have happen, for example.
0: It's interesting to me that like for the character of your story, um, we're being told the story at a very like critical point for her. But you know, prior to this, all these relationships and technologies have been set up in place to make her life better. Mm -hmm. Um, And she probably was really excited about it for the most part. Like it's really nice to have your refrigerator know enough about you and uh, your eating habits and enough about the contents of your fridge to automatically order replacements for the things that you enjoy or the things you need. Mm -hmm. Like these are these are things that are good for consumers. Right. But
5: I always go back to the example of is your paternalistic refrigerator going to nudge you to eat something healthy or is it going to keep ordering the oreos that you like and replace them like when they're gone and what balance of those kind of paternalistic nudges versus kind of you know healthy habit encouragement is going to be appropriate and how much say as a consumer am i going to get over that especially as these kind of personalization algorithms are behind closed doors and behind black boxes that's the big thing I think in the in this story is to try to tease out you know where the where the limits are for that being a, a useful thing or where my personal concerns are.
0: Yeah, and it, and it feels like it's it's different when you're reading something that's speculative than something that is definitely nonfiction. There's like some pivotal events that you've like pointed out that have already occurred that should take the veil over people's eyes. And be like, oh, my God, this is things are really going badly right now. But you get even more through fiction to be able to say these are these are things that are actually happening. And this is what could happen if we keep doing it.
5: Right. Yeah. I think anything, almost everything that I wrote about exists in some form or has been like joked about. So like the toilet. I don't think, you know, it's reached peak, but that was kind of a joke. But almost everything else, like I'm kind of making an argument that Com Warner is now, you know, Comcast and Time Warner together, but almost everything is like a f- existing or anything that would be at C- CES at the Consumer Electronics Show.
0: Yeah.
5: Um, so it's not that hard to imagine more of these devices are in our homes. So.
0: Right. And that's what people get really excited about. It's still the utopian future, even going back to like, 1950s Tomorrowland. Totally. People were like, all our like devices will eventually be automated and talking to each other. So they know everything about you and can predict things about what you want before you say you want it. Right.
5: Yeah. And I think that's the, the piece that gets me the most worried about any future kind of scenario, which is like something anticipating your needs rather than you going out and saying, I want to know about this thing, or I want to figure out how to get pregnant or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is that the thing is. The kind of dynamic shift Between searching for something and actually getting pushed. The thing that worries me about the kind of internet of paternalistic things, as I've described it, is that all those choice architectures that we were supposed to have in kind of searching for things or looking for things ourselves have been removed, basically. We have all these like really sleek interfaces that we don't get to interpret how they're processing our information and anticipating our needs, like sending a package of food that includes pickles and, and orange juice, for example. So not being able to tweak what those kind of preferential systems look like and, and how they interpret our intentions seems to be like a real big question.
0: Yeah. Is it partly like just the fear that it removes free will and in the, the individual choice? Or is it, does it go beyond that?
5: I think that's part of it. I think the thing that I think my piece explores is that there's also no way to fix it. Like there's no interaction. That
0: frustration that yeah, I've dealt with.
5: Yeah. yeah, and that no matter what I do, I still can't like fix it because it's not an open system. It's not exposed to me. I can't tweak the settings to kind of bypass
0: the system. What kind of like grander society-wide issues do you think that big data raises today and could potentially... Raise down the road.
5: Yeah. I keep going back to the kind of big data discrimination problem of, you know, how do you know who knows what and what kind of factors people are judging you based on? So I always go back to the fact that there are some loan companies, for example, that are trying to use big data and social media data to create proxies for people's socioeconomic status. So they're not necessarily saying, oh, we're judging based on race and these discriminatory things that are protected. They're using a all these proxies for um, these protected entities. And that's kind of introducing a workaround in some ways, but is also introducing a lot of inaccuracy. So that's kind of a concerning piece.
0: You experimented with wearing a Fitbit for a while.
5: Yes, I'm still wearing my Fitbit, Understand actually. It. Yeah. Okay.
0: What have you found on like the super micro level about how it uses your existence? <laughs> that you weren't expecting. <laughs> uses expect- my existence. Expecting?
5: It's interesting because for like a week or two over the holidays, I stopped wearing it. And I was like, I'm not getting anything out of this anymore. And then all of a sudden I was like, no, I still want to know how far I'm walking, how I'm sleeping. Like, it's really basic. But, it you know, I've been um, recovering from hip surgery. And so me knowing how much I'm walking every day actually really does matter to me right now. I think there's a future scenario in which you know, I just won't care anymore, or I'll be pretty much recovered and not worrying on a day-to-day basis what my patterns look like. But right now it does matter. So I've kind of been using it a lot for that. But as for my relationship to Fitbit, I've contended that, like, they don't allow you to kind of download your information unless you pay extra for it. And it, at this point, it's like, okay, well, I've bought the device. Like, why do I also have to pay for my data separately? Right. Like,
0: and what are they using the data for? <laughs> right. Why like, do they have to hoard it from you? Right,
5: exactly. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with integration in, in other places. And Fitbit does connect to a lot of other things for, for other apps and things like that. But that's the kind of thing that I that I really worry about is like, okay, well, how can I make any sense of this data aside from the interface that Fitbit offers me. And the other big thing that I've written about actually before is the fact that it's really not as flexible as you might think it should be for creating goals. And so Mm. they're not dynamic goals. It's either like 10,000 steps a day or nothing or like it's not a dynamic. Well, today I want it to be at 4,000 this week and next three weeks I'll be at 5,000 because I'm recovering from surgery. I mean, you can do that, but you can't look at your information in a contextual way. And that's kind of frustrating to me because I want to see progress my, my definition of progress is different from I think the standard use case so
0: mm-hmm. yeah they, they kind of like apply a uniform standard
5: yeah exactly humanity.
0: Yeah. getting back to the, the privacy thing do you kind of see any happy medium between being willing as a consumer to share that data with the companies and with ostensibly like anybody else who could have access to it is there a future in which people Will not have to be on guard about that kind of mm, thing.
5: I absolutely think there will be. I think it's going to require a more transparent interaction. So, right now, there's not a clear indication as to how Fitbit is using all of that information aside from just like hoarding data about the population. And you can try to kind of extrapolate the number of ways that they could be making money off of this data. Whereas, I think there's going to be some clearer value exchange. To individuals, as to why they would want to expose their data, or you know, what kind of deal would they get? I think that's a little explicit already in the kind of loyalty program setup, but it hasn't expanded into more areas of our lives. Like, what value am I getting aside from free services from Google right now? Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of added benefit are they offering um, with Nest? It's going to be cost savings, right? And that goes for both the, you know, en- the energy consumer, but also to the kind of deals that n- Google and Nest are creating with energy providers. So, but a lot of that relationship isn't really clear to consumers yet. And Google's a little, ex- like, they're starting to be explicit about that relationship, but it's not nearly as transparent as I think it it ought to be.
0: Yeah. It seems like um, that, that idea of transparency is just, like, similar to the, the one about our personal data. It's like, if we give up our personal data, you should be willing to, we, sh- we should be able to see what you're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the same thing with like WikiLeaks, you know, it's like, it we we trust you as a government, you're a government of the people, you should also be willing to be open and share right. everything that you're doing right. in our name. Um, but, uh, you know, like the, the, what worries me is that people will always have to be, you know, paying attention to, to that stuff. Like there's no uh, sense that there's like a principle in place that they can just kind of blindly trust and live the rest of their life without always having to be worried that someone is looking over their shoulder.
5: I mean, I think part of that is just that there's no accountability yet. So there's no systems in place for putting a rubber stamp on a company to say like, yep, their data practices are good. And, you know, yeah. I mean, there are things like trustees and stuff like that for online, you know, financial interactions. But, like, where is that for just data handling and and data kind of policies? I think that will start to emerge either by kind of self-regulating, like, you know, we're going to build the consortium of companies with good data practices. <laughs> um, and I think that's going to become even more important as, like, more of the Internet of Things becomes... Diversified and full of all these startups that you know have two or are run by two or three people and are kickstarted and like you know what guarantee do you have that they're not handling their data in the same way that Uber handles their data with like Godview being a part of the you know internal company policy? So well, that's I think the
0: example of Uber like they probably have privacy policies in place that uh, don't allow certain behaviors, but they apparently use their data in a very very uh, in ways that are very uncomfortable for people
5: right well and not actually privacy protecting so so godview i think almost anyone at uber can look at individual riders and like from a data non-anonymized yeah non-anonymized so like for a lot of companies that would be not acceptable as a data practice right like that that any user in the or any um kind of manager in the company would be able to see that kind of information. Um, there's there's an example of that being the case at um, in the early days at Facebook. But now I think if you're, like, a customer service person, you can't go in without, like, you know – having the right kind of data access
0: yeah like so at facebook now you can't have for instance your private message messages looked at unless there's like several layers of bureaucracy yeah
5: exactly and and all of that is to say that there's like a policy in place for like the right handling of that data and who gets to see it and who has permissions and in the same way that like snowden was part of that um part of that bureaucracy of who gets to see what. So maybe that's a bad example.
0: (laughs) Sarah Watson is a Berkman Fellow and the author of Dada Data and the Internet of Paternalistic Things. That's it for today's podcast, Radio Berkman 216, The Internet, a Yearbook, you can find links to the Internet Monitor Report Reflections on the Digital World, which includes all of the stories we just talked about, up on the show notes for today's episode on our SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Radio Berkman. This week's episode was produced and edited by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, with Carrie Tian, with special thanks to Gretchen Weber and Rebecca Haycock-Jones from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts.